0: I, I was at C B A a few years back, and um, and I I, um, I broke the culture I think, a little bit, or I didn't I didn't pay attention to the culture or something. Uh, I, I without much forethought, I told a story about my wife, who uh, uh, my wife Arda, who was teaching uh, grade nine girls uh, health education. So sex ed. So I, was, I told a couple fun things that they say grade nine girls ask about. It. Um, Bill Borman's wife was sitting there, and she texted him while she was listening, and she said, Hey, Bill, is this guy Canadian or what? <laughs> <laughs> I confess to being part Canadian. I grew up in West Michigan, lived in Canada for 25 years, and Bill, I think Bill's answer was, well, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it made me, think of, made me think of a story, uh, made me think of a, an experience I had 20 years ago. Um, in a Bible study, I was part of a small group household, whatever you call it. You know, we we'll haven't called it at the moment. cell so, group uh, Bible study, and uh, we were reading C.S. Lewis, uh, the Screwtape Letters, and there's a part in there uh, where uh, C.S. Lewis says jokes about sex, like these little stories and these great young are really not bad. That uh, jokes about sex, of course, not jokes that uh, demean people or objectify people or do, but in general, just realizing that we live in bodies and bodies are important and things like that. Uh, Well, one of of the women in our uh, small group was not having this. She just couldn't imagine that you could joke about sex. Whereupon, one of my friends in the group uh, thought he would try to dissuade her from this by telling her a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His his joke was, uh, yes, he's an English teacher, too, so you'll appreciate this once you hear the joke. But he said there was this uh, 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 very elderly man uh, um, who, who married a very young woman. And uh, uh, then this elderly man was talking with his friend, and his friend said to him, um, oh, Wow, we are married to this really young woman. And uh, how is it? He said, Well, how is it? Oh, he said, It's, it's, it's great.
1: We almost do it every night. Almost on Monday. Almost like <laughs> okay. you know,
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> This person my final study was not dissuaded. <laughs> <laughs> she still caught. Jokes about sex are not appropriate. Now you have to know that this guy's an English teacher and
2: the joke hinges on this misplaced modifier is that correct? right? Mm-hmm. So
0: the almost should have been someplace else in that sentence and then he would have recognized that. I heard David Smith this morning and I heard uh, Kevin Tempe and Great so far. I'm, I'm sure you've heard great speakers too. When I heard them, they I, uh, Kevin Tempe's uh, uh, written books about uh, disability. David Smith has written all kinds of great books. And, and I have a quote. I've learned a lot from David, uh, um, and I, I'm honored to teach with them, be able to interact with them, and hear things and learn from him. Because so I've learned a lot about how he thinks broadly about Christian teaching, and um, it's helped me a lot but it made me feel like a little bit of an imposter here. David through this exercise, and Kevin Tempe. I'm, I'm not really an expert in what we're going to talk about, but I wanted to have a conversation with you. Uh, I, I, my expertise, if I have anything that approaches an expertise, is literacy, and teach the literacy classes and that kind of thing. But I've got an interest in this idea of, one, kind of public schools, and what's happening in public schools, what's happening in our country, uh, in general, like what do we, um, what, what's what's the paradigm? What's the what's the movement in our country? What's happening in our country? And whether and again, in public schools, and does it affect us in Christian schools? And when I was here some years ago, some people said some of this does filter in Christian schools. So what's alive in public schools, and how we view teaching and learning and education affects us. Um, I was listening to um, I was listening to a group of teachers talk. Uh, uh, last year, and they were expressing some of their frustrations with their teaching situation, their teaching experiences, what was happening in their school. Uh, I wasn't part of the conversation, just eavesdropping a little bit. Um, but as I listened, I thought, actually, what, what's, what's, what's hanging them up, what's causing the problems, is that the school is changing its view of teaching. So how the administration, how the teachers, how the leadership, how the curriculum people, whoever it might be, how they're looking at teaching and defining teaching and thinking about teaching is changing and, and causing and causing problems for them. But it's hard, it's it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it, right? So I thought this might be a chance to step back a little bit, if you need to suggest a few ideas, and maybe you can step back and make so what what has to happen in my career in the last ten years, the last fifteen years, last twenty years? Uh, what how is teaching look that different? What are the different expectations um, that that come up for me? So there's, um, there's 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 a few good books that I would uh, like to refer to and uh, and just introduce you to. Um, One that I forgot to take with me this morning, but it's a really important one. Uh, It's it's called Reclaiming Accountability. Reclaiming Accountability. And it talks, it focuses on teacher education, but often talks about K through 12 education too. It's Marilyn Cochran Smith. I have all these references on on a slide at the end. But Marilyn Cochran Smith, Reclaiming Accountability. Um, And I'll show you a couple slides from her. Uh, Also, um, this book, uh, the pro- Professional Capital by Andy Hargraves and, uh, uh, and Michael Fullan. makes a really um, powerful argument about changing our uh, changing view of teaching and what's happening in our changing view of teaching and where we can find hope and where uh, where's misplaced hope and misplaced kind of directives. Um, and then of course, Dave Smith's book on Christian teaching. I don't know of anybody who um, thinks this deeply and clearly about teaching. Uh, and, and, uh, and as David does, um, I, I was uh, doing advising yesterday at Kelvin and uh, a, a student came in. She's a she's a German minor and a math major. I said, That's a great combination. Uh, you're a math major and German minor. And then she's, and she said, Yeah. And, I, and I'm taking I'm taking the world language pedagogy class that you recommended, was was not required for the German minor. And she said, This class is amazing. David Smith teaches world language pedagogy. And he, and he teaches it with such care and thought. And he talks a little bit about that here. Plus he's kind of humble actually still. Um, he kind of says, don't teach like me and I'm not the best teacher. But I think about teaching and I'd like to think about teaching with you. And so he's got that aspect too. So this book I draw on as well. And then the tyranny of metrics. You know this book, the theory of metrics? The tyranny of metrics uh, doesn't talk just about education, but uh, it, it talks about, uh, well, the tyranny of metrics and how metrics are. are us all up. I, I thought I'd just read you um, just opening here for a second. There's a cultural pattern that has become ubiquitous in recent decades, engulfing an ever-widening range of institutions. Uh, depending on taste, one can call the cultural meme. A discourse, paradigm, self-reinforcing rhetorical system, or simply a fashion, comes with its own vocabulary and master terms. It affects the way in which people talk about the world, and that's how they think about the world, and then how they act in it. For convenience, let's call it metric fixation. A key premise of metric fixation concerns the relationship between measurement and improvement. There's a dictum that says if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. Once it measures, gets done. Tom Peter says. When proponents of metrics advocate accountability, they tacitly combine two meanings of the word. On the one hand, that the be accountable means to be responsible, but it can also mean capable of being counted. That's the kind of that's the kind of accountability that Marilyn Conker Smith is, is arguing against. some. So let me, let me throw out a couple slides and then I have some spots where we can talk together and um, ask you some. So I'm concerned that the work of being a teacher is changing, as I said already, that a focus on metrics and accountability is making it more difficult to do the work that motivates us to become a teacher, that the rich, full understanding of your work in the classroom and the broad, deep goals of Christian schools are being undercut by this focus on accountability, on, on metrics, on measurability, and that democracy in our country and throughout the world, and the common good we seek for all people is in danger. So that's that's the, that's the trust of the Cochrane Smith book, that actually we have to reclaim accountability, that the accountability, if we allow the accountability paradigm to stand, that we're undercutting democracy, because the entire accountability paradigm is built on an economic model, built on what they call a neoliberal view of the world. And it, it undercuts all the important things um, that we do. While I was uh, thinking about this, I came across a, a quote by, by Beth Green, too, and I'll show you that in a minute. But Let me tell you a little bit more about the Cocker Smith argument. The new view of accountability is deformed. So, we... Um, For the last 20 years, we've been talking about educational reform. Educational reform is every place. Here's here's what most people believe about education in the United States, is that it's not good. Education's not good. uh, Because education's not good, that means teachers are not good. Uh, We were saying that for quite a long time now, for the last 10 years, they've added one more layer. Because teachers are not good, teacher education's not good, so now I'm part of the problem too. But we're all part of the problem, Edu- schools are not good, teachers are not good, teacher education is not good, the system is broken, we have to reform it. Educational reform. Maryland mayor of Congress thinks that educational reform defined the way they're defining it, which is test scores are not high enough, we have to get test scores better. That, she says, will undercut democracy. That is not, that is not Uh, what will sustain democracy throughout the world and in our country. There's a singular, limited focus on testing accountability, reducing the spaces in our work for discussion, action, and advocacy for social justice. Reducing the spaces in our work for discussion, action, and advocacy for social justice. She thinks when we allow the definition to stand unchallenged about what um, good teaching is, when we allow them to stand unchallenged, then we no longer have a space for our discussion about what teaching is, for our advocacy, for working for equity in our, in our country. Those, th- those things are undercut. My role as a teacher educator becomes, I have to make sure that teachers graduated from Kelvin go out and raise test scores. That's part of our accreditation system right now, our CAPE accreditation system for teacher education. We actually have to prove to our accrediting body that somebody I teach, when he goes out next year, test scores go up, kids are learning because of this student that I taught. This is problem difficulties, there's so many to <laughs> Think about the context of all of that. But, but that's how we judge, and that's how they would like to define whether or not I'm a good teacher educator. My teachers, the teachers that I had that I taught, do they raise test scores? Do they raise test scores? I did not become a teacher or a teacher educator just to have my students raise test scores. I mean, I mean, learning things, better, having better test scores, not a bad thing. But that's not the full range of what we're talking about. I, I told my wife where I was talking, talk about. It, she said, "What are you going to do at CDA?" And I told her. She said, Oh, it sounds really interesting, but I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> that worried me a little bit. And uh, maybe you should just talk to your partner next to you for a second. Do you have any idea what this I'm babbling about? Maybe talking to, <laughs> talk sure. to your partner. Reaching the wire. Talk to your partner for a second. Talk to your partner
3: to a second.
0: Of his son, uh, who's autistic, and uh, on a field trip with the class, and, uh, and he was very nervous about this because autistic kids don't aren't part of the community often. But he went there, and he was watching, and, and, and one of the other uh, one of the other uh, children in the class uh, took him, and they and, and he let. Um, Jameson, uh Kevin's son Lee, and they were doing all kinds of wonderful things. Where were they again? I don't know, some sky kind zone. of sky oh, zone. Sky Were you in that presentation? Yeah, that was a great presentation too, right? So you think about that, that's what we want from our children, right? We want them to learn to care about others and reach out to others and to learn to be um, we want we also want them to learn to read and write and all those things, but it's not it's not all there is, right? So, I think it's a little misguided then to focus on those test scores. Any other comments that you wanted to bring up right now? We had lots of good comments from the department. Yes, Bill. We were talking a little bit about how, um, because some things can be measured and some things can't, things like choir or art often become less important, even to Christian schools who want to know better. Mm-hmm. And so, we cut those things because, well, that's not going to result in higher test scores. Yeah. In spite of the fact that actually it Probably is going to result in higher test scores. Yeah. So yeah. we get a, a a narrowed view and a short-sighted view. Uh, That's right. That's right. And it reminds me that uh, um, um, that uh, the um, the Curtis Institute in, uh, in Canada, uh, Bonnie Green, David Smith, some others, uh, I don't know who were, made the Cartis Institute for Christian Teaching. They they they're um, they're bringing out a, a Christian Practices Survey. Have you heard about this mm-hmm. at all? A mm-hmm. Christian Practices Survey. And it's, and it's built on a, a rich model that you and Dave as soon as we begin to talk about, like not a singular thing, but how can we measure all those other things that we that are really actually very important for Christian schools? And so I'm kind of excited to hear um, where, where that goes and, and, um, and, and that we try to measure things that are more important to us, like and not ignore art and other things. Other comments that you want to bring in? Like
2: I, I just said yeah. one thing, too. Um, this happened to me, actually, yesterday in class. Um, when I had a, a class planned, um, things laid out that we had to get through. Um, and then I had a student who raised her hand, and she said, Can we please pray today? I, I have a prayer request, and I, I would really like to pray and then after she said it, then the whole bunch started raising her. hand. I'm like, okay, so my plan just went off. But, but you know, yeah, yeah. that is important, too, is. the spiritual growth of my students. Right. Who am I to say that my plan yeah. for you guys to get through all of these things
0: um, is the most important? Is the more. The most yeah, important. yeah we, always have, we always have multiple goals happening, right? I, I think... Um, uh, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I, I was with a, a group of principals a couple years ago. Christian school principals uh, were there. They were just talking. They were talking about uh, uh, the importance of putting an objective on the board. So here's what's going to be taught, and then and walkthroughs. So where does this idea, where these ideas come from? They don't. They don't come from a deep vision of Christian education. I don't think you can put. I, in general, I have maybe something that you hope is going to be conscious lesson. But actually, have about nine things that you probably want to have accomplished. Like community, like respecting, like making time for people to uh, have prayers together, and other things. But, so, to put a simple objective, teachers, we know as teachers, we just... We can do that. We can throw something on there, so that when the principal walks in, says, oh, there's an object on board. They're a good teacher. That nothing to That's nothing in you Really? That may you know, Multiple, multiple goals, always, uh, when you're teaching. And Katie Smith just went through that too, like nine different things that are going on all the time. Uh, when I think about uh, teaching my, my Education 322, I'm a, uh, a recovering administrator. I'm now a full-time <laughs> teacher at, uh, at Kelvin again. And um, when I'm teaching a class and I think, oh, I have taught this class for 12 years and I'm learning again about the complexity of, of teaching and I'm thinking, as oh, it's a class of reading the elementary program, so uh, 90% of the students are women, of course, right, in the elementary program. And, and I'm working with all, and then I'm trying to, I teach something and then I go watch them tutor something and I say, what's going wrong here? A whole bunch of things are are implied by what's going wrong. Maybe we should look at David Smith's quote, but who, who, is, who, are these, who are these young women? Well, I want them to be good reading teachers. I actually want them to, to develop agency and voice in a world that, doesn't, that tries to quiet them for the most part. It doesn't say women should actually speak up strongly and firmly. I think that's a worthy goal too, right? But I have multiple, multiple goals when you're teaching, so I just don't, I just don't know. I think we have to be careful about buying into those things that limit our understanding of education, limit our ability to have good conversation about the things we're trying to do, and uh, to limit how we can advocate for all the students. Other comments that some people want to bring So the kind of accountability we have now, not fixed teaching leads to the deprofessionalization teaching, perpetuates social um, education inequities, undermines the Democratic project that's more familiar with Cochran Smith, just saying um, uh, when we go down this track we'll deprofessionalizing teaching democratic accountability is based on the assumption that in order to survive 21st century democratic societies need deliberative and critical democratic education that teaches all students how to analyze multiple perspectives and engage in deliberative change a deliberative and critical democratic education. We have to teach all of our students how to analyze multiple perspectives, engage in deliberative change. Isn't that what we need from our, our country, from our students? Isn't that an important goal for what we're doing? It's founded on the assumption that democratic societies, teaching is for the public good, rather than market-oriented enterprises. So their argument is that we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty focused on an economic, understanding of education and the world. And, and, and we, we want a good economy. It's not a bad thing. It's just not the only thing, right? It's not the only thing. But if you have an exclusive focus, an economic focus, uh, then you undermine education and you undermine democratic societies. This is some stuff from, um, tell your partner what you think about this list. What you my picture of? Take it right there. I'm looking for two action Oh, <laughs> you, you usually gotta stand like pointing at
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jim, just stand
0: on <laughs> a <up the> chair <laughs> a second. There
1: you go. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Talk
0: to your partner about this list for a second. So this What you
3: Yeah. feel like I you feel like why would I'm getting one third of
0: Is the business capital approach to thinking about what teachers are? Um, This is what they believe about teaching that teaching is actually technically sophisticated and difficult, that it requires high levels of education, long periods of training. Good teaching is perfected through continuous improvement, involves wide judgment informed by evidence. So it doesn't say evidence is not important, but it doesn't say hard data is going to tell you what to do in this moment, right? It is a collective accomplishment and responsibility. It maximizes, mediates, and moderates online instruction. One of their what are their strong messages, um, and I think I heard David say this morning too, is that we actually need to work together more than we do. We have to we have to help each other grow uh, as teachers. Um, so when I think about, I really feel a little bit like a first year teacher now starting at Calvin again and, and teaching these courses. I need more time to talk with my colleagues. I need, <laughs> that, uh, I need to share what I'm doing and let them come in and give me feedback on what I'm doing and learn from them. Because they don't, they don't continue to become a better teacher uh, working together. I had, a, I had somebody come up to me at, at the CEA conference a few years ago and I was saying, uh, could you could you do a student teacher? Could you have a student te- I didn't know him, but we had a conversation about certification. And I said, no, I haven't become a student teacher sometime. And he said, ah, I can't. I'm not a good enough teacher. Give me a few more years and maybe you've been teaching for 10 years or more. And I thought, okay, you've been teaching for a while, but you don't feel confident that you're a good teacher. Teaching is very, very complex. And I thought, so what has what this life been like? Who's taking responsibility besides himself? We often think, we often say, I'm a good teacher, bad teacher, which are terms, those are really not the right terms, they're moral terms, aren't they? good, bad. I'm a good student, I'm a bad student. Are those the right words? I don't, I don't think so, right? Nevertheless, we use them. But I think we often feel individual responsibility. I'm, I'm a good teacher because I've worked hard at it, I've learned a lot of things, it's all individual. I've done, I've done these things, I've studied, but it's got to be much more collective. That's how we know people learn best together. That's how we know you can improve your teaching. Through working together. And then it becomes, and and actually, we don't want your school to have three good teachers, we want your teacher to have a whole staff of good teachers, that's what great education is. I tell my 322 students when I'm teaching them, uh, and they're becoming, I say, now, can you study with somebody for this test? Because I want all of you to be great teachers. Who, Who here could you reach out to and review things with, so that you learn the better, he or she learns the better, well, she usually learns the better, but who can you work with? We want everybody to be a great teacher. That's what, we're, that's what we're aiming for. And great teaching doesn't come from individual accomplishments, a heroic great teacher here and there. It comes from working together, collectively, and I think you need to ask your administrators, well, there are administrators in the room, I don't know, they are exactly, but you need to say, we need time to work together. We don't need another person coming in. We don't need Jim Rux to come in and talk to us. We need our PDDA to have to work together collectively on our teaching and, um, and sharing our lessons and sharing our goals and developing curriculum together. I think we do more of that now than we did before. Do you think that's true? Those of you who are a little older like Dale and I? Mm-hmm. Are we the oldest, Dale? We're no. in the 60s here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, we do a little
1: more at the, at the lesson level, but at the curriculum level, that's often done by someone that's hired in. And that's, that creates a lot of tension there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I like the old model when the, the administrative word would help a group of teachers develop the curriculum
0: together instead of being, if being brought down to, Right, which which is happening a lot more now, right? Uh, and so that's that's because actually we do we need more accountability because we don't really trust you. Mm-hmm. you well, that certainly feels like it. You know, that, 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 that's an accountability well, as yeah. you know, We're gonna we're going we're gonna make you all more accountable, but that kind of accountability will not get us good as schools. Will not get us good teaching. Will not make your job one that uh, you're gonna send your sons and daughters to Calvin or Trinity to become a teacher. A lot of people don't want to be teachers anymore. Do you know that? Or I know that we have about half as many people in teacher education in Michigan as we had ten years ago. Do you know? I have students come into my office uh, as freshmen and passport. I'm advising them. I say, you want to be a teacher? Yeah. My mom and dad are both teachers, and they said, don't become a teacher. <laughs> that's that, that's not good. That's not good. Yes, sir. And a piece of that too. I think I think you're right. I think we
4: are giving teachers a little more time to work together, but I also think during
0: that time, the expectation of what they're doing, which often revolves around curriculum mapping, are you meeting the standards, are you you know, keeping up with your um, tracking the, the map test and how each kid is, that leaves those teachers less and less time to do that professional stuff you are talking about before, I think.
2: I was essentially going to say the same thing. We do more and more together. We have no agency at all in what we do. We're told who to do it with and what to do. And which one to fill out. Yeah. Well, and I know um, David talked about this this morning too, is the whole email thing. Yeah. Um, trying to stay on top of our emails. Um, I work at two schools, so trying to keep you know, mm-hmm. those straight, but then yeah. also reply <coughs> to both. Schools yeah. and stay on top of that because nowadays it's like, oh, I'm supposed to reply to these so quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, like what David said about that. You've got to talk about that together collectively. Don't you? Yeah. yeah. Where is this list from? Again, is that from the same source? Oh, yeah, sorry, I did. But this is, this is, so this is, um, these list assumptions about teaching are from the professional capital work uh, from, uh, from the bulletin. Uh, yeah, I was talking about
1: this with some uh, one young student, uh, young teacher that I'm mentoring, which is, you know, we got some great practices now that we didn't have before. We, we have older teachers mentoring, younger teachers. So we got some, some great things happening, but I was getting my uh, master's about 20 years ago in communications, and then I was taking a course in uh, uh, yeah, communications in uh, business communications. And back then, 28 years ago, MBW was the big thing, Master's, uh, what was it? Uh, Management by walking around. And that's what the accountability was. And when you look at what the accountability now is at Amazon, and somebody has to work, and every 30 seconds they are watched. As opposed to 30 years ago, the manager had an interpersonal relationship, they walked around. And the same thing's happening in our schools as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I used to know my students so well because I had the time to walk around. As David was saying, I gotta check this, I gotta do that, and I gotta make sure all those things are right. Uh, so it was just eight years ago, I got a great article from the New Yorker with Wipedness. And that was if you're a teacher, you're an effective teacher, it's that you show Wipedness. And that is a measurable goal of how much that you understand and know. And that, that's kind of blown away too. So yeah, those are hard things to, to, to my, my daughter wants to be a teacher too, and I, I yes, yes, but it is, it's difficult,
0: yeah. So, yeah, yes, go ahead. Oh, you respond to that first. Okay, well I was gonna say going on what she said too, with what David
5: Smith said this morning about the emails and that kind of thing. Um, it goes to also, I, I'm finding, there's two groups of parents, right? There's the group of parents that are the, is my child kind? Um, do they have friends on the playground? Are they polite? Do they, are they respectful to you? And then the parent who's like, what does that math test score me? How quick can you grade this? I want to see this uploaded to the grade And you become to the point where you're like, listen, I want what's best for your kid too, but you have to trust me to do what's best for your kid, right? I mean, I know that there's
4: a the homeschool connection, like I know
5: that, but,
0: yeah I think that's part of the deep professionalizing I think that's part of teaching, right? We're not 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 understanding, not saying that you know what you're doing right. and that you've got a broad perspective on things. And then I, I think collectively as a school, like they Snish talked this morning, I think collectively as a school, with leadership you have to you have to set some parameters around those things. What are our responsibilities? How do we how do we work effectively with students for the broad deep goals that we have at as Christian yeah. schools? That are way beyond just those scores, right? Yeah. This is a little bit more from uh, professional capital. Best schools are those that invest in teachers. Schools where administrators understand community and social capital and professional capital. Teaching is too complex to create good teaching through lots of rules. Improving teaching can never be done to or for teachers can't be done two or four teachers. None, nothing you do two or four teachers actually ends up improving schools. That's verifiable by research. It just, But we still try to do it that way, right? Instead of recognizing the importance of professional teachers <laughs> working together with the leadership, that that's how you improve um, schools. Teachers need to be fully involved in the conversations and decisions about how we define and how we assess good teaching. So, just one more word about accountability. Just to make sure, um, we're we're not against accountability, right? Accountability is important. It's just where 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 does accountability lie? What how do we judge what accountability? I I do need to be accountable in my teaching to my colleagues at Calvin. That's important. Uh, what I teach and how it fits in the program and how I do it needs to I need I need to be accountable to them. I think um, I, I think. The college model has a little bit more of being accountable to your fellow teachers. I don't know if you're doing this in your Christian schools or not, but but I, I'm, I'm still at Kelvin because my um, because my fellow faculty members in the education department have evaluated my work and say I still should be at Kelvin. Um, and I think, um, uh, and we work not as much as we should in the education department at saying we know who's a good teacher and what good teaching is and how we support each other in good teaching through visiting each other's classrooms. We also do it at Kelvin, uh, probably at all college and universities. We do faculty evaluation. I mean there's student evaluations for every course, every semester, and those are those are the goals for the college. But they're not that good. They're kind of customer satisfaction things, right? If I give you an A instead of a B, you'd give a lot more, right? And so there's all so there's not so you need better accountability. So we're not against accountability, we're just against misplaced accountability that it's all on testing. That testing uh, is, is gonna is determine whether or not you're a good teacher. And, and there are problems with all the metrics around that. So accountability narrows the definition of teaching. You re test scores, focuses only on teacher quality. Uh is that confusing to you? So had teacher quality. So in, in, the big, in the big vein of things right now, I, um, so I'm in Grand Rapids, I work at Buchanan School. Um, uh, I've got my students are tutoring there, one class I tutor with. There's not a single student in Buchanan who speaks English. <laughs> not all of them speak Spanish. Some of them speak uh, some, uh, a, um, a native language from, um, from their home country. And that first grade teacher, uh, and those students will be will be judged, um, whether, they're good, whether they're good teachers by how well these students do on test scores—that that can't be right. So, but we narrowed it down to the teacher. folks on teacher quality, not about the fact that in that, at that Buchanan school they have 36 students in each of their fourth grades, and they can't get another fourth grade teacher right now. They just can't find a qualified fourth grade teacher to come in. 36 high needs, high needs school in that way. So. When we don't think about equity, we don't think about uh, racial segregation, we don't think about how, how well schools are funded, and that there's not peer approach. That school used to have two reading teachers in it, um, 12 years ago, two full-time reading teachers. They have no reading teachers supporting them now. They have no money for that anymore. So, but if we think, ah, but it's all about whether Dale's a good teacher. Dale's a good teacher, these first graders are gonna do great by the end of the year. That's not, they can't focus only on teacher quality, can you? That's not, and and if you close down the conversation, I was at the Michigan Legislature last year, they were passing, trying to pass really, really crazy bills about teacher education and stuff, and so, I testified there, but as soon as you start talking about something, other than teacher quality and teacher education quality, they say, oh, now you're just making excuses. So you can't talk about, you can't talk about poverty, and that poverty, socioeconomics is the biggest predictor whether whether school is a good school or a bad school. Good school, bad school. I think there's an
5: additional problem in Christian schools. Yeah. And I'm going to say something very negative which is not like me. And something
3: very polyamorous. I'm very negative. Which is totally, totally <laughs> like
5: me. One of the reasons I think this accountability problem has to be a bigger problem in Christian schools is because we work so hard. And you know what? In that class with 36 kids... That fourth grade teacher is probably doing a pretty good job, you know. I mean, it's public school, whatever. But like in a Christian school, you give a Christian school teacher an impossible job. We're still going to try to do it, right? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, hard. it's that work ethic. It's yeah. that doing it for the Lord, not for men, yeah. not for thirty-six kids. You know, yeah. Yeah. we'll do it, and and we'll do it anyway.
3: Yeah.
5: Second thing is, yeah. you guys do it so well, you make it look easy. Why do people think anybody can be a teacher? Or we don't need to improve teacher education because you make it look easy because yeah. you're doing it well. So I think a way to work on both of those things is to complement each other. Go to your principal and tell them about that lesson that you heard going on next door. Tell them about the time that your kids came into your senior Bible class and talked about, well, what did you think about that poem that we were talking about in English class? Like, Didn't that make any sense? You know? like, go to that teacher and tell them you did a good job, and then go to your principal or write a note and say, those kids are so excited about reading nonfiction. Yeah. So. And, and we got to brag each other up a little yeah. bit, because yeah. when you're doing it well, I think we need that encouragement. Yeah, those are good suggestions.
3: Thank
0: you. Now, uh, can I, can we just, I'm going to go through David Smith's quote, I want to, rip. I think I've I show Dwayne, got this nice speaker for me, I'm not going to get to it, Dwayne, sorry, but anyhow, Um The high-bottom's tried a little for Nate Watson, but I won't have a chance to. But I, I like this quote from this quotation from David Smith. I have to say a quotation, from T.J. teacher university and English professors will correct you. This quotation from David Smith, teaching is irreducibly complex. Teaching is complex because human beings are complex. And he uses the word complex, not complicated, because complex is different than complicated. Uh, uh, you know, a CD player is complicated, it's got all these parts, but we, they're all stable and we know how to interact complex. We don't know the relationship between all these different parts, complex a different thing. Human beings are complex, and to teach is to try to help human beings grow. People interact around learning tasks. They they come to them with a range of motivations, limitations, beliefs, feelings, fears, expectations, gifts, weaknesses. This made made so much sense to me as I'm trying to figure out my students I'm teaching right now at Kelvin. Like, why are some of them learning and applying things? Why are are some of them showing this kind of disposition when they're working with the first graders? It's because of their own beliefs about themselves, about learning, about their own sense of gifts and weaknesses. The identities and imaginations of teacher and learner come into play, along with their attitudes toward each other, toward learning, toward the subject
3: matter.
0: Words, symbols, metaphors, gestures, meet particular webs of meaning... Around what goes on, behaviors don't just happen. They are witnessed, interpreted, judged, responded to. Ideas are not just explained or covered. They're accepted or misread or recast or adapted, joined, isolated, cast aside, excuse me for the typo, cast aside or applied. This is a wonderful picture of how complex teaching us. That's why we can't um, we can't reduce teaching to the kind of accountability that's currently dominated. Because teaching has all those things going again. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine said, ah, "I just want to be a truck driver." Mm-hmm. My teaching is so complex. My wife, uh, who was teaching a couple years ago, she loved teaching and she was full of self-doubts for, for teaching all the time because you don't reach all students all the time, right? And you don't, you don't do things well all the time. I can remember 30 years ago a principal telling me that this teacher that was joining the staff where I was teaching, that was his best teacher. That boggled my mind. I still don't get it. What is a best teacher? I just don't get that. I don't get a best teacher. There are teachers who are very relational. There are teachers who are very organized. There are teachers who are have incredible gift with language and explaining things. There, there are all kinds of things about teaching. I don't get a best teacher. Ralph Davidson might be one exception. Otherwise, I don't get best teachers. I don't, I don't think that's true. All of us have strength, and we work together, we compliment each other. I'm kind of echoing David Smith back up this morning. It made a whole lot of sense to me that we, that we work together on those, uh, all those things, the worldview, the practices, the morals, the different things that we do together. If you want to talk together for a minute or hear Renee Watson, tell your partner what you'd like to do. Want to hear Renee we haven't enough time to talk together. Can we talk together? Yes. How about, how about you talk with your, a couple people around you for a second and then we'll talk together? I didn't even really think you had a chance to poll, did I? No. no. <laughs> 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 I should have uh, said a text kind of thing so <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: you could do an instant poll on you know, <laughs> <laughs> the other. Uh, I'll have to poll. I'll have to poll. I'll have to poll. I'll have to go for a day. day, day, day. day.
0: Got an amazing way with words, think I heard her statement. She talks about how important teachers were to her, and teachers were not focused on test scores with her. They saw her as a person, and wanted to get to know her, and encourage her gifts. And that's that's why we're teaching for all the, for all these interactions, the powerful interactions we have with students. So it Might be worth hearing. I think she's I think she's really got um, a, a wonderful way with words, and now will she talk for us. <laughs> Rylan uh, Watson, I L I. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's it's a it's a protected lake. Oh, I got him talking. This guy's crazy too. Hinge Brewery.
4: Good morning sharing my story with you. I'm going to share a poem about where I'm from. I'm made up of East Coast hip-hop and island tradition. I'm from Baptist hymns and secular jigs, tambourine playing late night singing at the church house or my friend's house or their friend's house on the weekend. Where I'm from, there are corduroy hand-me-downs and family keep things. Family pictures on the wall, open Bible on the coffee table. I'm from that side of town, where the media only comes from what shed, what wasted, never from what stored, celebrated, or regenerated. I'm from hopscotch to from and double dutch, from Heidi go and Pac-Man. I'm from curry dope, rice and peas, and beef patty. From turquoise with water, white sand, and dreadlocks, reggae is in my blood. Grew up in the Pacific Northwest, a place where rain falls, where the sun shines. I'm from redwood spurs and pine trees, where we walk under waterfalls, drive up winding roads, and escape to the beaches on the Oregon coast. Where I'm from, music takes away the blues. I'm from by Marley and Jackson or Lisa Franklin, James Brown. I'm from Jackson Five records and New Edition tapes. Where I'm from, maybe wine takes over and over and over again so you can write down the lyrics and memorize them. Where I'm from, the whole neighborhood is your family. Ladies sit on their porches looking out for you, chewing away boys like flies, calling your mama to tell her what you did before you can get home and lie about it. Where I'm from, People ask my friend, "Is that your hair?" And she says, "Yes, yeah, mine. I bought it." <laughs> I'm from divorce, being cast down to children like a family heirloom. I'm from single mama, pushing shoulders, praying that the babies don't have the same struggles as them. I'm from a little for the long way from suns that are shine after the rain. I'm from persevering souls and hard-working hands from a people destined to make it to the promised land. I'm from been there, done that, can, and will do it again. Now you, tell me, where are you from? Thank you. Thank you. So, I write a lot about where I'm from. And this was a gift that my teachers gave me when I was a child, that they were allowing me to bring my whole self to the classroom, that the curriculum was embedded with what was happening in the world. My teachers asked me questions like, where are you from? What do you see outside of your window? What do you have to say about that? And for me, growing up in Portland, Oregon, in a neighborhood that had a lot of stereotypes about it, where I always felt that those were speaking on behalf of me, where the media was speaking about me, either because I was young, because I was rural, because I was black, because I was economic and poor. I wanted so bad to take the mic back, tell my own story, not just talk about the brokenness of my neighborhood, but the beauty and to also say that some of the things that they thought were broken were actually just broken. I wanted to be able to tell my story, and I'm so grateful that I had teachers who allowed them to critique and celebrate home, and that both of those things should exist together. I'm standing here today because teachers taught me how to love words, the written word, how to love reading words, how to love speaking words. Those three things were always in conversation with each other: reading, writing, and speaking. I'm here today because of my second grade teacher at Vernon Elementary School. When I was in the second grade, I wrote a 21-page story, and I brought that story to my teacher in that surgery day. It wasn't for a classroom assignment. I just wrote the story at home. And she could have said, I'm too busy. This is not an assignment. I have other things to grade. But she took time to read that handwriting, that spelling, and she wrote notes throughout the story and gave it back to me and said, hey, you should keep working on this. I think maybe you're going to be a writer one day. They could have stopped there. That was enough. That ignited something in me. But she did something even more. When I would be going out to recess, she pulled me aside and said, hey, have you added any more to that story? On Fridays when I was leaving for the weekend she'd give me a piece of paper with a list of writing prompts and sentence starters and say, maybe this will inspire me to start another short story. Sometimes she asked me if she could read what I was writing, but most of the time she just encouraged me to keep writing. She gave me permission to own my words outside of her classroom. Writing was something that I didn't only have to do at school. She encouraged me to write my story. She gave us a a list that she would curate of some of her favorite books that she read when she was our age. She gave us a list of books that she learned that were currently out. And so reading became something that I could do for fun, that I could do on my own, that wasn't just an assignment. I'm so grateful that that teacher gave me the ability to imagine that she didn't shut me down, in the second grade, I was writing murder mysteries. I was writing magical realism stories. And she let me do that and she encouraged that. And so I took away from that that I could use my words to imagine other worlds. I could entertain people and scare you and make you feel something with my words. In the fifth grade, I had a teacher who came to class one day with tears in her eyes. She was holding a newspaper. In her hands, she was kind of trembling,
3: and was very tired.